Uh, We're going to finish up our series today called Beautiful. I wonder as we start, how many of you remember this commercial uh, from this year's Super Bowl? Take a look at this. That is how much it is. Boom! Your payment today will be, tell me what you love about your son. I love his compassion for other people. Nicole says that she has to dance right now. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Strawberry Sunday's waiting on you. You paid with love and that's all we need. Your total is one big family hug. You guys remember that commercial? Remember that, uh, that marketing campaign they had called Pay With Lovin'? And uh, at first, you look at that and you go, man, what a great idea. It's a, it's a you know, hashtag GC Beautiful, right? What a great way to do it. The hope was, I think that McDonald's had, was that people would see McDonald's as a family-friendly place to go eat. That people would forget that they're ingesting 900-calorie bombs, you know, and they would think about family and friends and love and all that. Well, what you may not have heard is that this campaign was a total flop. It was a complete disaster for McDonald's. In most cases, the promotion backfired because what happened was people were asked to dance who probably really shouldn't be dancing at all, in fact. And so uh, what happened was several journalists went to McDonald's during this and got, you know, called on the carpet to pay by some random act. And then they started writing about it and blogging about it and putting it in their media outlets. And they started making fun of this campaign. And then the YouTube video started. And uh, there's a whole section on YouTube dedicated to people who had to go to McDonald's and pay with lovin' and do some um, humiliating thing. And it's one thing uh, when the cashiers are friendly and bubbly and outgoing, but you know how Some McDonald's cashiers aren't like that. And when they're asked to dance and dance with a customer who they don't know, well, as you can imagine, it can get a little awkward. And so, and then there are people standing in line calling their moms and saying, mom, I love you. Yeah, no, that's great. No, I know we haven't talked in a while, but mom, I, hey, I really just called to get my 99 cent sausage biscuit. And so I've got to go, yeah, mom, of course I'll call you later. Of course I will. I know I haven't talked to you in a few weeks, but of course I'll call you later. And so it created all of these really awkward interactions, these forced interactions, these forced, and several journalists have said this was the worst marketing campaign of 2015. Now, if you can imagine, if you think back over the course of your life, you can probably think of some pretty bad marketing campaigns, right? Uh, if you remember New Coke, that's kind of the, the classic, if, if you will, no pun intended. That's the, that's the classic example they use in business school of a blundered marketing campaign. So even though the Coke executives did this taste test and knew that people thought New Coke tasted better than Old Coke, they still didn't take into consideration the feelings and the emotions that Coca-Cola elicited. And so when they put this out, it was a complete flop. Well, maybe you think of a more obscure one, like San Francisco-based eatery Casa Sanchez, uh, who said that any of their customers who get a tattoo of their logo anywhere on their body uh, got to eat free for life. And apparently, Casa Sanchez completely underestimated the number of wackos in San Francisco (laughs) 
And so what happened is very early in this campaign, their lawyers had to come forth and say, hey, we need to limit this to 50 people, and you should probably choose who they're going to be because there are some people you probably don't want your logo tattooed on for the rest of their life and limit it to one meal a day. Well, when I think of bad marketing campaigns, I think of uh, this one from uh, much earlier. It's an ad written by Sir Ernest Shackleton, who was recruiting crew members for what would, would be the first attempt to cross Antarctica via the South Pole. I read about this several years ago in a book called Endurance. The ad, which was said to have been run at a London paper in December 20, or 1913, said this, if you can't read it, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. Ernest Shackleton. When you see that ad, what do you think? Who would respond to an ad like that? It's a pretty bad marketing campaign, right? Well, if there's a bad marketing campaign for following Jesus, I think it's the one that we're going to read today. It's in the text that we're going to read as we finish up this series called Beautiful. For eight weeks, we've been looking at the Beatitudes, those eight statements made by Jesus at the beginning of probably his most famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And through these statements, he's attempting to paint a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like by telling us who's blessed in this kingdom. You know, you can tell a lot by a kingdom by the people who are in it, right? You can tell if you're on a job interview, you can tell about a place to work by the people who work there. Uh, if you go to a church, several of you, if you're looking for a church, you can tell about, a lot about the church by the people who attend there. Well, if, if you want to know about the kingdom of God, what you need to do is see the people who are in the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. These are the people who are blessed in the, in the kingdom of God. Now, as a reminder, this isn't really a planned sermon, at least as far as scripture tells us uh, in the mind of the people there. I'm sure God had a plan for it. But instead, it came as a result of Jesus looking around and he saw a large crowd of people was gathering and he thought, aha, here's my chance to tell them what the kingdom of God really looks like. And it's not, he's not telling them what, they sh- what we shouldn't do or what we should do. He's not scolding them. You know, he's not, he's not giving them instruction, but he's trying to encourage them. Because most of these people that were around that were following Jesus were common, ordinary people. They had lives and they had uh, livelihoods. They had families. They were people like you and me who were just trying to find out what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. They had problems and they had doubts, and Jesus wants to encourage them. And so he starts, and we'll just go over what we've talked about the past eight weeks. Matthew 5, starting with verse 3, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So far, so good, right? I mean, as long as I can be humble, I understand I don't have anything to offer to God, and I can be merciful, and I can have an undivided heart, and I can be a peacemaker. This rabbi who's telling me about the kingdom of God says, hey, I'm blessed. Good stuff. Good stuff, Jesus. Way to go. And then comes this next part. And the scripture I want to read is, as I said, probably the worst marketing campaign for Christianity I can think of, uh, starting in verse 10. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs are the kingdom of, is, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, here's what Jesus starts saying. If you start to follow me, some things in your life are going to change. 
your life's not going to look the same as it did before. Look, Jesus never said following him was easy or cheap or free. All right, you can look all throughout scripture. He never says that. He says, if you start to follow me, your life's going to change. You're going to become a different person. Your life will start to bear fruit. Your righteousness will show. You'll become more humble. You'll, you'll begin to mourn the sin of the world and people will scoff at you for it. You'll, you'll leave behind your self-righteousness and you'll become more focused on God's righteousness. You'll become more merciful. You'll become a peacemaker. And as your life changes, the people that used to know you will feel threatened. Now, they might, might laugh at first. They might try to shake it off, but eventually your relationship with them could grow strained. People will cut you out of their lives. You may be shunned or, or you may face outright persecution. This is a little scary, quite honestly. I mean, even for me as your pastor, I'm not sure I should preach this verse. Uh, quite honestly, it would be really easy to just say, hey, let's make beautiful a seven-week series. We'll talk about the seven Beatitudes, right? And then we'll skip on to something else. We'll go talk about grace or we'll talk about sex. People love to talk about sex in church. Let's talk about something that people love to talk about and let's not talk about persecution. Because honestly, I know there are people in this room who are at every step on your walk with God, like at every phase along the way. And, and some of you are here in this room and you're just checking out like what it means to follow Jesus. And, and you hear some guy up in front and says, hey, if you start following him, your life's going to change and you're, you're going to accept his righteousness. And when you accept his righteousness, uh, you decide when you decide to make Jesus your Lord, that you're going to be persecuted. And in case you didn't know what that looks like, it, Jesus goes on to tell us, you'll be insulted, you'll be lied about, and evil things will be said falsely about you. Now, I know, as those of you in the room who are Christians, that you probably don't know what it looks like when people say false things about Christians, right? You never heard that happen before, but it happens. It happens in the newspapers, it happens on TV, it happens in your life, in your workplace, in your home, probably. But in case you didn't know, Jesus said that. But, but I'm up here, and like, I want this church to grow, <laughs> I mean, I want people to keep coming and finding their way back to God here. I want people to come into saving relationships with Jesus Christ through Genesis Church. And so the flesh side of me says, let's just skip this part. Let's not talk about persecution. But Jesus took this opportunity to remind everyone listening, even just a couple sentences into his first big sermon, that they're going to be persecuted, that the cost of following him is high. And that was just as true 2,000 years ago as it is today. I mean, all around our world today, people are being persecuted, they're being lied about, they're being insulted, much, much, much worse because of their faith in Jesus, because of their righteousness. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say because of your niceness. Okay, Jesus isn't all about making nicer people, kinder people in the world. He's trying to make different people, right? He's trying to make them righteous. He's imputing on us or giving to us God's righteousness. When we decide to follow him, that's what's happening. And the people who then accept God's righteousness, God's moral code, God's way of living are the people who get persecuted. And that happened 2,000 years ago and it happens today. And most prominently, we see it in groups like ISIS, you know, who make a sport of capturing Christians and killing them in brutal ways and then releasing that video for the world to see. We see persecution in cases like uh, Pastor Saeed Abedini, who's being held in Iran. We've, been, we've talked about him before, but he was in the news again last week as the U.S. inked a nuclear deal with Iran. And still, Pastor Abedini, he's been held captive there for about three years because he was holding underground church services in people's homes in Iran. And there's still no talk about when he may or if he may be released, but he's held captive because of his righteousness. And these high-profile cases, they capture our attention and they, they draw us in. And I know all kinds of people who are praying uh, for ISIS and are praying for Pastor Abedini. But then there's 
easy to forget that persecution like this happens all over the world in cases that we may never hear about, cases like Susan. Susan lives in Uganda. When she became a Christian in 2009, her father started beating her, and then later he locked her in her bedroom to starve to death. Fortunately, her little brother felt sorry for her and started sliding roasted bananas under her door uh, so that she could survive. She was locked in her bedroom for six months until the neighbors became concerned because they hadn't seen her, and they called the authorities. Susan was then taken in by a local Christian organization, and even today she's being nursed back to health. You can see a picture of her here in 2012 when she was rescued and in 2015. When she was freed in 2012, she was skeletal and weak and unable to walk and talk. Now, still in recovery, Susan can walk with the help of a walker, as you see there, and she's enrolled in Christian school in Uganda. She, she dreams of the day she can one day walk unassisted, but her goal in life is to go back and minister to the people who persecuted her. And those kind of stories happen all over the world every day, but we don't always hear about them. Now, when we hear heart-wrenching stories like that, it's hard to compare those to the persecution we face. I mean, having the cashier at Walmart say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas doesn't really compare, does it, to being beaten, imprisoned, or beheaded. I mean, it's, it's hard to get too worked up over the problems American Christians face when the global church seems to face so much more. But that doesn't make our persecution any less real. And the truth is, even in the U.S., which was formed, by the way, as an overtly Christian country, the church and followers of Jesus are facing real opposition. You don't need to look any further than the last few weeks to know that. We, we see how we're portrayed in the media, uh, how we're portrayed after major Supreme Court decisions or major laws are passed, how we're portrayed after major uh, news events that involve Christianity, and you can look and see the face of what Christianity looks like to most Americans. For, so, for example, in 2008, Crystal Dixon wrote a letter to the editor of her local newspaper in Toledo, Ohio. The paper had run an editorial comparing the struggles of being born black with the struggles of being gay. Dixon, who is an African-American and a Christian, felt like she should have a voice in this. And so she wrote, an editor that she did, wrote a letter to the editor that said she didn't think they were the same thing, but she included in her letter the idea that human beings, regardless of their choices in life, are of ultimate value to God and be, should be viewed the same by others. Dixon was fired three days later, and the administrators of her university, where she worked in human resources, said that letter was the explicit reason why she was let go. Even though she, she wrote it on her time, on her equipment, she didn't mention the university or her position there, her belief system, her worldview, got her fired from her job. Or take the example of uh, tech powerhouse Google, who released a powerful suite of tools called Google for Nonprofits a couple years ago. They made them available for, to, for free to nonprofit organizations all over the world, didn't have to pay a dime for this. But do you know who was specifically excluded from using these tools? Churches. Google said in their terms of service that churches were not allowed to download these tools for free. They were specifically excluded in the original launch of the suite. Now, Google has since changed its policy, but the intent was clear. We live in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to Christians, especially what we would call evangelical Christians, that is, those who believe that the Bible is God's word and that Jesus is the only way to salvation. But this is nothing new. The late pastor and theologian Francis Schaeffer predicted this as early as 1984. He wrote this, Sixty years ago, could we have imagined that unborn children would be killed by the millions here in our own country? Or that we would have no freedom of speech when it comes to speaking of God and biblical truth in our public schools? or that every form of sexual perversion would be promoted by the entertainment media, or that marriage, raising children, and family life would be objects of attack. 
persecution against Christians, against our way of life, is real. And friends, it's only going to get realer. As much as I hate to say that, I don't think you need me to tell, tell you that. Because the truth is, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably experienced persecution for your beliefs, persecution for your righteousness. Now, it may not be from a government or from an employer or from some agency or organization that you're dealing with. It may be persecution from your family and friends. I mean, maybe you're chastised for being the one in your circle of friends that doesn't drink to excess when you go out. Maybe the persecution comes from within your family. You know, you found your way back to God, but your dad still hasn't. And he doesn't want to hear all that Jesus stuff you talk about. Or your sister or your brother, they don't really care about you or call you anymore because in their mind, your belief system is so messed up. I mean, how can you be so intolerant? How can you be so behind the times? Or maybe you're a student and you're the only person you know who has a goal of making it to your wedding day a virgin. And people laugh at you for that. Your friends laugh and they make fun of you. But you're doing it because you know, you know you're doing the right thing. That, that kind of persecution may be less severe than what we sometimes see overseas, but it doesn't change the way it makes us feel. It's just as real and it's just as painful for people who suffer it. And Jesus predicted that. 2,000 years ago, he said, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness. So how are we resp- to respond to persecution? Well, Jesus gives us a hint when he says that, blessed are you. He says, blessed are you. We should view ourselves as blessed, right? By the way, that's the kind of persecution we're talking about here. I want to make it clear that we're talking about when people make, people make fun of us for all kinds of reasons. People will say bad things about you, uh, call names, discriminate for all kinds of reasons. Some of it's deserved, some of it's not. I mean, it's never right to call people names. It's never right to say bad things about people. But Jesus is specifically talking about persecution for his sake because of what we believe and how we act because of his righteousness. Persecution we face because we are children of God. How are we to respond to that? Well, he goes on. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because of Jesus. And then he goes on, Rejoice and be glad because your reward is in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. If you're taking notes, I just want you to write that down or or type it in your app or whatever you're doing. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. Now I got to tell you, I, I usually think Jesus is a pretty good teacher. But when I read that, I just think he's on something. When we face persecution, we're supposed to rejoice and be glad. I mean, what does he expect us to do? Are we supposed to just ignore it? Pretend it didn't happen? Well, I've done a lot of thinking about this verse. I've had three weeks, I told you, right? So I've done a lot of thinking about this verse. And here's what I think he's saying. Two things to remember uh, that are important. These are in your notes if you want to follow along. Number one is this. Our home is in heaven. We need to remember that our home is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship, those of us who are believers in Jesus, we're followers of Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's so important to get, remember that eternal perspective, that this is not your home. You're staying here for now, but eventually you're going to go to heaven, and that's where your home is. When, when we go on vacation, my family and I, we usually have fun, but it's different, you know? You're, you're in a hotel room, you're in a strange place, you don't get to see your friends, you don't get to sleep in your bed. Uh, the four of us in our family often end up cramped into one hotel room that's smaller than my bedroom at home, but it's tolerable. Why? Well, because one, the things you get to do there are great, right? And I think the things we get to do here on earth are pretty good. 
And two, because I know I don't have to stay there forever. That someday I'm going to get to go home. And usually the things we do and the hope that we have in going back home make up for all the inconvenience you have on vacation. You know that first day of vacation uh, when you start uh, longing for all the comforts of home? Usually it's two or three days in for me. Like you're so glad to be there the first two or three days, but then you start longing for the comforts. I wish we had our own kitchen. I wish we had our own washer and dryer. And then eventually it's, I wish I had my own bed. And you're gone for a few days or a week or whatever. And that first night when you get into your own bedroom and you slip in between your own cool sheets and you just go, I believe God gave us that experience as a little taste of what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. Like to know that that's our home. It's just a glimpse. So if you're feeling persecuted, remember, you're here for now, but you're not from here. Your home is in heaven. The second thing is this. Our reward is in heaven. Our reward is in heaven. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. Now, I want to say this. I know it's hard to keep that eternal perspective. I mean, it's really hard when we face all kinds of persecution and hatred and hostilities with the reward not to come for most of us by God's grace for many, many years. And if you have a hard time keeping that in perspective, you're not alone. I think even the disciples who walked daily with Jesus in human form had a hard time remembering this. And in one instance, Jesus has this encounter with a wealthy young man who wasn't willing to comply with what Jesus asked him to do. You know, Jesus always asks us to do things when we follow him, not because we can earn his grace, but because he wants to make us into more righteous people. And so Jesus asked him to do some things, and this guy walked away sad. And Jesus, I don't know if it was out of compassion or frustration or what, he started teaching and talking about how money and possessions can often distract us from eternal things. Yeah, good things can distract us from eternal things too. It's not just bad things like persecution, but good things can keep our focus on the here and now just as well as persecution. And then the disciples chime in because they've been persecuted. They've given up things for Jesus. They've left their families to travel with Jesus. They've been chased out of places. They've been ridiculed. And they ask, what about us, Jesus? What's going to be there for us? And here's what Jesus tells them, Matthew 19, 29. He says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And so while Jesus isn't specifically, in this case, talking about persecution, he's talking about people who give up things or lose things for his sake. And really, that's what persecution is. We're giving up something for, giving up rights for Jesus' sake. You're, you're giving up your will in exchange for his. So as I was thinking this week about how to rejoice, how are we supposed to rejoice in the face of persecution? This, this verse came to mind, and, and this thought occurs to me. Here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of the worst job you can imagine. Go ahead, think about it. Tell, tell your neighbor, what's the worst job you can imagine? Some of you are saying the job you have now. That's not fair. Okay, the rest of us have to use our imagination. For some of you, maybe it's, maybe it's laundry. Our Haiti team, you just got back from a week. You probably have a pile of laundry that you have to do. I think, I think there are people in this room right now that are Christians only because you believe that hell is nothing more than a giant pile of laundry with a little tiny washer and dryer. And that every time you think you're getting to the end of it, there's going to be more. It keeps piling up. You wake up every morning and there's more laundry in your house. You go to bed at night and think, what should I do before I go to bed? And you look and there's more laundry, right? There's more things to do. For some of you, that's the worst job. What if you had to do laundry full time? I tell you, for me, for me, it would be the guy that picks up roadkill on the side of the road. Now, here's why. (laughs) I'm a runner 
And, and when you're out running along the side of the road, usually you turn a corner and you smell it before you see it. Right? There is nothing in the world that smells like rotting meat. Right? You know that smell. You get that smell in your head and you're, you're running along the side of the road. And you just know up ahead there's going to be a flat possum or a squashed raccoon or something. There's going to be buzzards or, or crows picking at it. And you get up there and you know when you get up there you're going to see blood and guts and bones and fur. Eyeballs, thank you. I know it's gross, but persecution's hard. Right? So just think about this, all right? So you've got this picture. That's, somebody's job is to come along every day and scoop those things up with a shovel. Hopefully they use a shovel. And, and put them in the back of a truck and take them somewhere, right? Somebody's job. Now, I wouldn't want that to be my job. But imagine that's your job, okay? And then imagine you need this job to feed your family. So you'll drive and, and imagine that you get paid by the piece, all right? Every carcass you pick up is 10 bucks. Every time you see a squash possum, you pick it up, you shovel it in the back of the truck. When you take it back, at the end of the day, you go get your reward. Your reward is 10 bucks, right? And so here's, here's what you do. Here's how you'd approach your job if that was your job. You would go around and you would pick up 15 or 20 a day and you would put them in the back of the truck. You'd hold your nose and you'd scoop them up and you'd shovel them and you'd put them back in the truck and people would ask you, how do you like your job? You go, well, you know what? It's a job. I just tolerate it because it's what I have to do. You wouldn't be excited about it but you do it, right? That's how most of us treat persecution. That's how most of us handle that is we just, we we don't rejoice and be glad in it. But what we do is we go, well, you know what? Jesus said in this life, we'll have trouble. I expected this. This It's just, it's just part of what we do. If I'm going to be a Christian, this is what I do. You know, that's how we view hardship for the sake of Christ. It's ugly. It's messy, but it comes with the territory. Now imagine you've got this job and a new boss comes in. This is what happens when Jesus becomes your boss. All right. A new boss comes in. And he says to you, anybody who picks up possums, raccoons, squirrels, birds, yes, even cats, especially cats maybe, uh, will receive a hundred times the reward. All right? And so now instead of getting $10 for every squash possum you pick up, you get a grant. Can I tell you what you'd do? Most of us would start driving around like madmen or mad women looking for squash possums. Right? We, we, we'd have our eyes peeled. We'd have our shovels ready. Every time we'd find one, you'd give out a big Dukesu hazard. Wahoo! And you'd scoop that thing up, and you would have great joy when you did it. Right? You would go around driving in other people's territory looking for their squash possums. In fact, you might even squash a few yourself. You'd work extra hours, and every time you saw a squash possum, you know what you'd do? You would rejoice and be glad because great is your reward when you get back. When we truly remember our citizenship is in heaven, our our reward is in heaven, that's how we respond to persecution. Uh, Look back at this verse one more time. There's one other thing I want to show you. Matthew 5, 12, as we're wrapping up. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. In the same way, they persecuted prophets who were before you. Now, Jesus didn't really have to explain what that meant. The people of his age would have, but I feel like for us, it warrants an explanation. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament in chapter 11 goes through a long list of people in the Bible that we see who accomplished great things for the kingdom of God. And many of those people were persecuted for their righteousness, but they still did great things. He talks about Joseph, who was sold by his brothers and imprisoned. Moses, who was held as a slave. And Gideon and David and all these great heroes of the Bible who, even in the face of persecution, became famous for their faith. But then he says something interesting. He writes this. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.35 says, There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. 
Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were commended for their success, right? We all get commended by for how much we accomplish. No, that's not what it says. They were commended for their faith. It wasn't what they accomplished. It was what they believed. Not everyone who's persecuted for their faith makes the headlines. We all don't get to be heroes. But all of us who are persecuted for our faith, for our righteousness, who stand strong in the face of pressure and temptation from the outside world, all of us are promised a great reward in heaven. Now for the last couple minutes, I want to talk to two groups of people. Uh, First, I want to talk to those of you in the room who aren't yet followers of Jesus. You've been patient with me as I've spent 30 minutes or so talking to the believers in the room about persecution. And you may think, man, I'm so glad I'm not a Christian. So I don't have to deal with that. I don't have to worry about being persecuted. But let me say this. I don't want the fear of what might happen stop you from doing what you know in your heart to be right. For some of you, you're here and you've been coming for a while because God has been drawing you to himself. You're like one of the crowd in the Sermon on the Mount. You've sat through this series these eight weeks and you just know that Jesus has been talking to you. He's wanting you to be blessed. He's wanting you to be a part of the kingdom of God. If that's you, in a a moment, we're going to pray, and I'm going to give you the chance to become part of the kingdom of God today. Today may be the day when your life starts to change. And then finally, I want to talk to the people who are here, followers of Jesus. You'd say you're a Christian, but you don't really face any persecution. Like, this has been good. It's been good to hear about, but I don't really have anybody in my life that hates me. Nobody really avoids me, at least not because of my faith, maybe for some other reason. But, but in fact, since you've become a Christian, not much has really changed. I want you to ask yourself why. Why is that? Is there anything about your life that looks different from the non-Christians around you? Is there, is there some place, some area of your life where you've been either, either intentionally or unintentionally, you've been leaving God out? Like, is there some relationship where you've said, God, you're not welcome there? You're not welcome in my love relationships. You're not welcome in my finances. You're not welcome in my marriage. You're not, you're not welcome in my parenting. Every place else, God, I want you to have your way, but not here. You've been keeping him out. For this whole eight weeks, we've been hearing Jesus saying, if you follow me, your life is going to look different. And so I just want to go into a time of prayer right now. And if you would uh, bow your heads with me and close your eyes. So we go into this prayer. I just want you to take a moment to ask, Is there any area of my life that Christ has called me to change or to get rid of or to add to or to start where I haven't been faithful because I'm afraid of what people will think? Just ask this question as you're in prayer. Is there anything about my life that because of Jesus makes me uncomfortable, makes people uncomfortable at work or at school or in my family? So I hide that part of myself when I'm around them. I believe that God is inviting us today to let that go. Don't let your fear of what people think stop you from your reward in heaven. God, we want to start living questionable lives. That's the kind of life that makes people think, I I don't know what's gotten into her, but I want some of it. I don't know why he's like that, but I want to know more. A life where our friends will ask us, why don't you come drinking with us? 
Why won't you ever go camping with me on Sunday? Why are you so adamant about staying sexually pure until you're married? Why do you have so much joy all the time, even when it's hard? God, we want to use our lives as living sacrifices, living in a way that our very lives help people find their way back to you. Jesus, your word says, blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We want to experience that today. Help us, Lord. God, I pray for my friends in this room that are here and they don't have a relationship with you. God, I know that I feel that you've been drawing them to you and they feel that too. If you're here today and you hear about all this persecution and you think, you know what, even in the face of that, I know the right thing is for me to enter the kingdom of God. You can do that today. You just need to pray this prayer with me. God, I need you in my life. I'm so tired of fighting this battle on my own. Jesus, come into my life, take the penalty for my sin and send your Holy Spirit to live in my life, to guide me, uh, to be a part of my life forever. God, I, I, I give my life over to you. If you just pray that prayer, welcome to the kingdom of God. God, we are so thankful that you teach us that even in the face of persecution, you remind us that we will have a great reward in heaven, that our citizenship is there. And we just, now as we go into a time of communion, we want to thank you for that. We want to remember the price that you paid on the cross so that we could have that great reward. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once a month here at Genesis Church, we like to celebrate communion. Your church tradition may call it the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, um, but it's up here at the front. There's two tables in the back and two in the front. And here's what we believe about communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to take it with us. You don't have to be a part of any church or denomination. We ask that if you're not a follower of Jesus, you just let this moment pass. Listen to the music. Maybe think about what this means for your life. If you just pray that prayer, you're welcome to take it with us. You're welcome to take your, your first communion as a follower of Jesus. Uh, when you come up here, there will be uh, two cups stacked on top of one another. The, the bread, which represents the body of Christ, is in the bottom. You'll take that first. And then the juice, which represents the blood of Christ, is in the top. Take that second. And Jesus reminded us that whenever we do this, we're supposed to remember him, remember his life, and remember the sacrifice that he made on the cross. You can come do that at any time now.